You know, one of the most fundamental questions that humanity has wrestled with for ages is that of what happens to people after they die. Ever since the fall, death has been a constant reality for humanity. And the question of what comes next has plagued mankind for ages. You know, you can find thousands of books on Amazon on this topic. I didn't read any of them in preparation for tonight because most are utter garbage. They're a, a personal perspective or best guess of what comes. When well, our text tonight, Paul writes so that we would not be uninformed about those who are asleep, about those who have died. So we can know the answer to that question, at least in part. We're going to consider tonight 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Let's read it together as we begin. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, these verses contain what is the clearest biblical teaching about the event we call the rapture. It comes from the the word translated in English, verse 17, as caught up. The, The Latin translation for that is where we get the word rapture, which means to be seized or to be snatched. It refers to the event where Christ returns to gather the church, his bride, both those currently living and those who have died, to be with him. But this passage is, is more than theological. This passage is here because it is pastoral. You know, as you recall, we find ourselves in a, a portion of this letter that's focused on practical exhortation that began in verse 1 of this chapter. Paul's addressing very specific issues that affect the Thessalonians' day-to-day life. He's already addressed their general pursuit of spiritual growth in verses 1 and 2, and he's addressed their sexual purity in a perverse world in verses 3 through 8. Last time we studied this letter, we saw in verses 9 through 12 how he addressed their love for others and and the fact that they were to work diligently as a testimony to the unbelieving world around them. And so it seems a bit like an abrupt transition to go from those practical issues to now speaking of end times events, of eschatology. But it's really not. It's a continuation of a very practical exhortation for how they're to think and live that will continue after this section. You see, the Thessalonian believers needed to understand details about Christ's return, details about the rapture, not simply for the sake of their own curiosity, not not simply so that 
They could pass a theological test or affirm a a particular doctrinal statement, but to have comfort and hope in death, whether for themselves or, or more specifically, as it seems here, for that of a loved one who had passed. There's not one of us who doesn't need that same hope. Paul in this text provides a Christian's hope in death. You know, he begins by acknowledging the common lack of hope in death. Notice back in verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. This is why he's writing to them. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about something. You know, Paul is is recognizing that uncertainty about death leads to a lack of hope. He understood if you don't know what's happened or what will happen, that the result of that is, is a lack of hope, a need for comfort and encouragement that comes from understanding what is true. He says, I don't want you to be lacking in knowledge or to be ignorant, not just generally informed in Christian doctrine, but specifically, he says, about those who are asleep. You know, sometimes this word is used of actual sleep. Jesus in Luke twenty two forty five 45 found his disciples sleeping, but more often it's used as a description of death. We see this in, in John 11. You remember when Jesus received word about Lazarus. It, it, it says this in verse 11 to 14. It says this he said after he had said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And And the disciples, scratching their head, probably said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Why do we have to go wake him up? And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So he said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Paul's talking here about those who have died, but he says those who have fallen asleep. Now, some have wrongly understood this to think that there is some sort of soul sleep, some period of time between one's death and resurrection where you're in sort of a state of hibernation, unconscious and unaware, which is not what the scriptures teach or what Paul is talking about here. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we are of good courage and say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. When a, a believer dies, they're their body is, is done, but their soul goes to be present immediately with the Lord. There is no soul sleep. So, so why this description? Why, why refer to death as those who are asleep? Is it simply to soften it? You know, people don't like to hear the word death or to talk about death. You may even be sitting here tonight and think this is kind of uncomfortable. I wish we could talk about something more pleasant. Is he just trying to, to soften it? No, he's, he's helping us to think about the temporary nature of it for those who are in Christ. Just as you wake up after a nap or a night's sleep, death is a, a temporary reality. There will come a time when we will be raised, when we will receive a new body. And so it's appropriate that he says those who are asleep. So Paul didn't want them to have uncertainty about death. The reality is that's what's true for most people when it comes to facing 
death, either their own or that of a loved one. They're uncertain. They hope for the best. They hope there's something good that comes, but they have no confidence. Again, this isn't because there aren't many opinions on what happens after death. You could spend the rest of your life reading books, as I mentioned, about what might happen after death and try to figure it out. Countless books have been written, some from personal experience, supposedly, of those with a a near-death experience or vision into the future, some with a Uh, some religious instruction, some from more of a scientific evaluation. That's one reason why there's so much confusion and uncertainty, because there's so many opinions and perspectives and so many so-called experts. Even as Christians, many Christians, as was the case in Thessalonica, have questions or uncertainties about death. Like the Thessalonians, you might have some general understanding of their future hope of the return of Christ and and the coming resurrection, but lack the clarity of a clear understanding of its reality. This is one reason why Paul wanted to come to them. You remember, Paul had been with the Thessalonians, but not as long as he would have liked. And so, back in chapter 3, verse 10, he said, We are night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul had taught them many things when he was with them. He, he had taught them much about the return of Christ, but there was more he wanted to teach them to complete the things that were lacking in them, and, and one of those things was the truth that he teaches them here. You see, he understood that hope in facing death comes from understanding the truth, understanding sound doctrine produces a stability of hope. You know, Paul had already commended the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 3, for their steadfastness of hope. They had a confident hope in the Lord, but he wanted to deepen that by and strengthen that by teaching them this particular truth. And the reality is there's only one authority from whom we learn the truth about death. We'll see in verse 15, as it says, for this we say to you by the word of of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is the author of life. He's the one who defeated death. He's the only one who can speak definitively about what comes after death. And he has done so through his word. You don't have to read the thousands of books out there. You just need to read this one. So as believers, our hope in facing death, our own or that of a loved one, is based on reality as revealed by our Lord, and this reality should have a profound impact on how we respond to the death of one who is in Christ. For Paul also recognized that grief over death is often characterized by a lack of hope. Notice how verse 13 continues. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Again, not just for their head knowledge, but so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul's goal for them is not simply information, but that they would be comforted through their sure hope. That's where he ends in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul is here contrasting the appropriate response to death for believers as opposed to the rest who have no hope. He's speaking to the brethren in contrast to the rest. You see, death for believers involves hope. 
We'll see the ground of that in, in the next verse, the death and resurrection of Christ. But the rest have no hope. And this shows up in how they grieve. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. He's, he's not saying that, that biblical hope is incompatible with grief. It's not. He, he's not saying so that you will not grieve at all, period, as do the rest who have no hope, but so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The nature of our grieving is different. You see, it's not the act of grieving itself that Paul is is saying shouldn't characterize a Christian, but the, the nature of that grieving ought to be vastly different because of the hope that we have. You see, there's a kind of grief that characterizes unbelievers. It's what drives them to read all those books on Amazon. It's, it's scratching for something that will alleviate their hopelessness, but there's no relief for that apart from Christ. And so their grief is a, a hopeless one. It's one for whom death is final. It is all loss, both for that individual and for those who love them. And it can have catastrophic results in their life. You probably know of, of an unbeliever in, in your sphere, someone that you know or love, who, who because of the death of a loved one and that they could not deal with and had no hope in, that their life spiraled down as a result of those things. That's the nature of unbelievers facing death. That's not true for those who are in Christ. That kind of grief ought not characterize a believer regarding their own death as they anticipated or, or that of a loved one. You know, believers still grieve, as D. Edmund Hebert writes, we need not assume that Paul intended to prohibit the natural sorrow and sense of loss we feel at the death of loved ones. We deeply miss loved ones who have died, and we face real trials adjusting to life without them. Even Jesus himself grieved the death of loved ones. Later in, in John 11, it said Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha met him and the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her. When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. And Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. He didn't say, hey, you shouldn't be weeping. No, he was moved and troubled and, and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Believers grieve the loss of a loved one, both for themselves and others who are going through that, but they grieve differently. Believers grieve, but in that grief we have real hope. What is that hope? Well, Paul moves from the, the common lack of hope in death that he's seeking to address to, secondly, the sure foundation of our hope in death. Notice verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He says, if we believe, not as though there is doubt, 
but really since we believe, because we believe these things, we know that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What is he talking about? Bringing those who have fallen asleep with him. Well, in in verse 16, he makes it crystal clear when he says that the dead in Christ will rise first. He is speaking of the hope of future resurrection to be with Jesus. This is what Jesus taught his disciples in John 14, another key passage on on the rapture, on the, the gathering of God's people, the church, to be with Christ, where Jesus spoke to his disciples as they anticipated his death and him leaving them and they were troubled. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what Paul is describing here, the fact that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will be gathered to be with him as Jesus had promised. Well, what is it that we believe that is the sure foundation of this hope? Well, Paul first highlights Jesus' death and resurrection in verse 14. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will do this. The foundation of our future hope rests on what Christ has already done in the past. He says that Jesus died. Because Jesus died, we have confidence that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You see, Jesus did not deserve to die. Death, as the scriptures teach, is a result of sin, and Jesus had no sin, and yet he died in the place of sinners, sinners like you, and like me. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's why he died, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's through Jesus' death that we have hope, but it's not just the fact of his death, but how we can benefit from Jesus' death that gives us hope. The benefits of Jesus' death don't come to all. We see that at the end of this verse. You notice the little phrase, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This this idea of being in Jesus, it's at the end of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's at the end of this verse here in verse 14. It's a small phrase, but it is of utmost importance. Paul uses the phrase in Christ or something similar to that, like in him or in whom, some 164 times or so in his letters alone. It's one of those phrases, though, that as you read through the Bible, you just kind of skip over because it's like, yeah, he's just saying we're in Christ. But it is a huge theological truth. These phrases here and elsewhere teach about our union with Christ. That it is only because of our union with Christ, our connection to Christ, that we have a future hope. 
So much could be said of this. We, we won't uh, take time to fully develop it because it's two words in this section, and that's why it's easy to skip over sometimes. But it is so key that we understand the only reason we can be with him, that God can bring us with him to be with him for eternity in the presence of holy God is because of what Christ has done and because of our connection to him. You know, I remember once as a young boy growing up in in Missouri having the opportunity to go to a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game. And I, I didn't just have the chance to go watch the game. I got to go down into the dugout before the game while they were finishing up batting practice and those things and got to get a number of autographs. I, I remember getting one from Ozzie Smith, uh, their Hall of Fame shortstop at the time. And, you know, the reality was I didn't deserve to be there. I don't remember how old I was. I played baseball, but I did certainly not deserve to be there on account of my baseball skill, right? They, they didn't say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you play a few innings for us? Nope. I, I didn't deserve to be there because of any connection I had to the team. I didn't know any of the players. I didn't know anybody connected to, uh, to management. The only reason I got to be there was because I was connected to my uncle. My uncle owned a bunch of car dealerships right across the river in Illinois, and he bought advertising with the Cardinals, and he had box seats behind home plate. And so because of that, I got to be in the dugout. It was my connection to my uncle that allowed me to be there. You know, in a much more significant and profound way, our future hope is found only in our connection to Christ who died for us. Apart from that, there is no such hope. So how do we become connected with Christ? How do we become in Christ? How do we be uh, those who have fallen asleep in Christ? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 describes it for us. Turn over just a, a few books to Ephesians chapter 2. First part of this chapter highlights our our need for Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then verse 3, notice all the phrases that connect with Christ. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is because of God's grace that we can be connected to Christ. It's by his mercy because of his love. So what's the the vehicle by which we are connected to him. Notice verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. We, we can't even do that ourselves. God has to give us that gift. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have to repent and believe the gospel, what Christ has done by grace through faith to be saved, to be connected with Christ, to receive the benefits of his death on your behalf. If you are in Christ, 
You have a future hope because you are united with him in his death. Because in his death, the payment for your sins, the just wrath of God that you deserve was satisfied. Our hope is rooted in the death of Christ being applied to our account because we are in him. But it's not just his substitutionary death that is a foundation for our future hope. It's also his resurrection. He says that Jesus rose again if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have confidence that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is central to our future hope. It is proof Christ's payment was accepted. It's like a receipt that God says this payment was paid in full. And it's proof that death and sin have indeed been defeated so that we too will enjoy eternal life. You know, we see the centrality of the resurrection most clearly in in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn over there with me briefly. 1 Corinthians 15 In this chapter, Paul is defending the resurrection and and detailing its implications for the believer. We, We won't read the whole chapter, but pick up in verse 12. Paul writes, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He says the gospel clearly involves the resurrection How would you say there's not one? He says, if if that were true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to all the things that are true. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, he says, then our preaching is in vain. There's no point in me standing here talking or you sitting there listening. He says, then our faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you can think you're saved, you can think you're forgiven, but you are not. And he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have simply perished if there's no resurrection. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But, verse 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who are asleep. He says, the reality is Christ has been raised. And he was raised as the firstfruits as the deposit, as the payment, the down payment that, that guarantees future uh, uh, payment, that more is to come. He says, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, it's because we're connected to Adam that we are sinners and that we die so also in Christ now, because we're connected to Christ, all will be made alive. But each his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. What is the foundation of our future hope? It is Jesus' death and resurrection. 
The foundation of our future hope is not first off what will happen in the future and one one day when he returns, it's what he's already done. He died and rose again. But, But there's a second foundation that we see in this passage in the beginning of verse 15 and it's Jesus' authoritative revelation. Why do we have a sure hope? Because Jesus because of Jesus' death and resurrection and because of Jesus' authoritative revelation. Notice verse 15. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He's about to describe more specifically what will happen at the return of Christ. And he says, This is not my best guess. This is not what I hope will happen. This is not something that... I know a guy experienced in the near-death experience. He says, this I say to you by the word of the Lord. We have a future hope yet to be realized, and we know what it is because Jesus himself revealed it. He says, I say this by the word of the Lord. You know, many details of Jesus' return and our future hope are recorded in the Gospels. Jesus taught them to his disciples while he was on earth. It's possible that Paul is referring to the things Jesus taught while on the earth, although I think it's likely that he is referring to something he or another New Testament prophet received directly from Christ, new revelation, new details about the rapture. Just as John received additional details about the coming of Christ that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation, so Paul is here saying, here's more specifics that we can know. Either way, the point is clear. Our confidence in what will happen in the future is based on Christ's authoritative revelation. We know our future hope is secure because of Christ's death and resurrection and because of his authoritative revelation revelation. What is the future hope? What is it that we look forward to? Well, Paul describes thirdly the specific details of our hope in death. The specific details of our hope in death. Notice what he says by the word of the Lord, verse 15, he says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord. Notice first Paul gives the timing of the rapture, some details about the timing of the rapture. You know, the specific question that he's answering here regarding its timing has more to do with the the timing of the events that are related to one another at his coming, The, the reality of what happens to those who've already died and those who are still alive. The Thessalonians were wondering about those who had already died if they were at some disadvantage compared to those who were still alive. Will they miss out on, on the return of Christ or, or will they have, you know, kind of a back row seat possibly when Jesus returns? And so they were concerned for that. And Paul answers that question a resounding no in verse 15. 
He says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He says, to answer your specific question about the timing of the rapture, the answer is no. There will not be a situation where the living will go first and and the dead will be at some disadvantage. But there's also a broader question about the timing of the rapture. Paul doesn't address it directly in this text, but it's the timing of this related to other end times events. Now, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you know we're studying the end times and the end of Revelation, and and we've spent a, a significant amount of time working through those events, so I won't take a lot of time with it tonight. But as you're likely aware, our church believes the Bible teaches a premillennial return of Christ, that Jesus will return and then establish his 1,000-year reign on the earth prior to the great white throne judgment and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. He returns before the millennium. And we also believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That is that there's a a two-stage return of Christ separated by the seven-year tribulation period, the imminent rapture of the church that could happen at any moment that will occur before the tribulation, the next event on God's timeline, and then the ultimate return of Christ following the tribulation that ushers in his kingdom on earth. Our doctrinal statement reads this way, we believe and teach the personal bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ before the seven-year tribulation to translate his church from this earth and between this event and his glorious second coming with his saints to reward believers according to their works. Now you can go back and listen to Tom's message on the rapture of the church this past fall where he presented a a variety of arguments biblically for a pre-tribulational rapture. Tonight I just want to highlight several from this text and and book. You know, we believe the Bible teaches that this event, the rapture, will occur before the tribulation in part because of the very nature of the question that they're asking. They're wondering, are the dead in Christ at some disadvantage relative to the return of Christ and the resurrection? Are our loved ones who have died at some disadvantage? Well, if the rapture occurs after the tribulation, I think Paul would have answered that question differently. I think he would have said, no, they're actually at great advantage. They don't have to endure the tribulation. In fact, you'd all rather be dead before that happens. But he didn't say that. He he didn't give them that answer. He, He instead describes the events that will take place and the fact that those who are alive and those who are dead have really equal opportunity, equal blessing at the return of Christ. So the very nature of their question seems to indicate a pre-tribulation rapture. And it's possible that Paul had taught them that more explicitly when he was with them. It's also because of how Paul describes the events of the rapture compared to the return of Christ. I read and we'll look at in more detail verses 16 and 17, which describe the Lord descending from heaven, not saying that he comes all the way to the earth, and and it describes how believers are caught up to be with him in the clouds. This is different than Revelation 19, uh, 11 through 14, that describes the, the glorious return of Christ with armies clothed in fine linen, white and clean, coming with Christ from heaven. 
Again, this makes perfect sense if believers are previously raptured and now with the Lord in heaven, seven years later they return with him as part of that army clothed in fine linen. We also can see something of this from just what Paul teaches about believers and God's wrath in this book. Look back at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul mentioned the return of Christ and how they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You see similar wording in chapter 5, verse 9, which says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers will not endure God's wrath, and the tribulation is an outpouring of God's wrath on humanity, so it is reasonable to conclude that God will snatch us up before the outpouring of wrath. So while I believe we can rightly conclude that the rapture recorded here will take place prior to the tribulation, that's not Paul's primary concern in this text. It's, it's rather the question of the timing of those who are still alive and those who had died going to be with Jesus. Notice he again answered that question definitively in verse 15, and then in verse 16 he describes in detail what will happen. We see the stages of the rapture. What is the sequence of events that take place? Notice first, he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. We see first that the Lord Christ will return. Jesus himself, the Lord, will descend from heaven. Again, it doesn't say he will come all the way down to the earth to establish his kingdom, although he will do that eventually prior to the tribulate or to the millennium but it does say that he will descend from heaven and notice what will accompany this he says three things will will accompany this the first he will descend from heaven with a shout then with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god a shout here refers to a, a loud command like that given by a military officer commanding his troops. It it makes us think about Christ's command to Lazarus when he called him to come forth from the grave. Perhaps this is the command of Christ to those who are dead in Christ to rise to new life. And he says he will come with the voice of the archangel. Michael is mentioned as the only archangel in the Bible named in Jude chapter 9. We don't know what the archangel is saying, but certainly heralding the the return of Christ, and with the trumpet of God, a a common use of a trumpet to call to assemble. And we don't know exactly what this will look like. You may have uh, read a book, a fictional series about this, and have some specific thoughts. We don't know more than what Paul records here. And so as the Lord descends, then, secondly, we see the dead in Christ will rise. Verse 16 says, as after the Lord descends, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead who are in Christ, believers in the, the church age, it, it, who have passed away. It seems clear from other scriptures that Old Testament believers will be raised at the return of Christ after the tribulation. So this is his church. Those who have been part of the church who have 
passed away, those that Paul was speaking of, those who had fallen asleep in Jesus. And they will be raised first, their soul reunited with a, uh, with a glorified body. And then third, the living in Christ will be raptured, verse 17. Then, after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All living believers at the time will be snatched up to be with Christ, transformed into our resurrected bodies to be with Him for eternity. You know, I use the term stages to describe these three events, for there's clearly an order and a distinction that Paul teaches, but the point is not really to separate them, for they happen rapidly in conjunction with each other. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, where Paul says, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He says, not everybody will die, but every believer will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Some believers will die first before receiving their resurrected body when Christ comes at the sound of the trumpet, and some will be changed instantaneously as he returns. Leads us to the culmination of the rapture. Notice how he ends Verse 17, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is really what it's about. That believers, both those raised and those raptured, will always and forevermore be with the Lord. You know, that was the disciples' question when they talked to Jesus in John 14, wasn't it? When he said, You're, I'm, I'm going to go away. And they're like, what? We, we want to be with you. We want to go with you. And Jesus said, you can't go with me now. They said, why not? We, we want to be with you. And, and Jesus said, I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come back for you. And you remember Thomas said, how, how will we know the way? And he says, you know the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What was it that his earthly disciples longed for? They longed to continue to be with Jesus. And he said, you will be with me, and I won't leave you again after that. We will be together. This is Christ coming to take us to be with him forever. This is Christ, the bridegroom, coming to take his bride to be with him forever. This is the culmination of the rapture. This is our hope. This is what we who are in Christ look forward to. This is what those who have died in Christ will one day experience That's why we grieve, yet not as those without hope. But it's more than just a future hope. It's a a reality that should greatly affect us now, which is why Paul concludes with the present implications of our hope in death, the present implications of our hope in death. This isn't just something that affects our tomorrow. It affects our today. We saw at the end of verse 17 what it's all about, that we shall always be with the Lord. The first implication I want you to think about is how we are to live now in anticipation of being with Jesus forever. This is not about those who have fallen asleep. This is about those of us who are alive and remain now. The fact that we look forward to that one day we will be in the presence of Christ 
for all of eternity how we should live now in anticipation of that reality. What difference does it make in your life today to know that you will be with the Lord forever? You know, there's a lot that the scriptures say about this. One implication of how we should live now in, in anticipation of being with Christ is that it, it produces Christ-like character. Knowing that you will be with Jesus forever should produce Christ-like character now. First John 3 describes how we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And it says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You may think of Ephesians 5 when Jesus is speaking to husbands and how they should love their wives. And, and he reminds of Christ's love for his bride, the church, how he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The bridegroom will come and the bride should be pure and spotless. We should strive to live lives of holiness and Christ-like character because one day we will be with Jesus forever. It also provides clear priorities for us. The fact that our eternity will be with Jesus means we should be seeking first his kingdom, as Jesus said in Matthew six thirty-three. It means, as Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, that we should keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We should set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. There's lots of things screaming for our attention in this life, aren't there? There's lots of details of life, and they're not unimportant, and they're not things that we shouldn't deal with. We should, even as, as we were reminded last time in this book, that we should work with our hands and and mind our own business and, and be diligent in the details of life. But our overall priority is to seek first his kingdom, not to get bogged down in all the trappings of this life, but to live for the next, for his glory. It also just provides helpful perspective, doesn't it? It fuels our present joy. Our joy is bound to Christ, not our present circumstances. Our bridegroom is coming. And he will take us to be with himself. And so regardless of what we face, our, our trials are truly momentary and light in light of eternity. And it promotes perseverance. You know, we sung the song, we're almost home. Almost home, almost home. So do what? So press on toward that blessed shore. When we're tempted to be discouraged or to grow weary in this life, we need to remember what Paul instructed the Thessalonians in, that we're almost home, that Jesus will return. Keep enduring and persevering. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. Because of the certainty of the rapture and the resurrection, we are to live now in anticipation of being with Jesus forever. And Secondly, and really as the focus of this passage, we find comfort when facing our death or that of a loved one who is in Christ. Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. His focus is not write a doctoral dissertation about this or argue about the timing of this, but comfort one another. Encourage one another. 
if you have a loved one who has died or is near death, who is in Christ and, and you're in Christ, you need to know it's not a goodbye. It's a see you later. You, you grieve not, yet not without hope, because they are now in the presence of the Lord. One day soon, Christ will descend and they will be raised to be with the Lord forever. And if you are still alive at that point, you too will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. If you're facing death and are in Christ, that death is not the end. Oh, it's, it's the end of your earthly tent, of your perishable body, but it's not the end. You will one day rise like awakening from sleep, be raised imperishable to be with him That is real hope. It is a confident assurance that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus and comes from the authoritative revelation of Jesus. Now, if you're not in Christ tonight, if you don't fall into the category of brethren that he addressed in verse 13 and and those who are in Jesus, you do not have that hope in death. This is a Christian's hope in death. It is not the hope of an unbeliever. Hebrews 9.27 describes what comes after death for those who are not in Christ. It says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Not the celebration of a a bridegroom coming for his bride, but the judgment of a holy God against enemies and rebels. But you can have this hope if you will come humbly to Christ in repentance and faith. You too can be in Christ, united with him, having his death satisfy what your sins deserve and being credited with his righteous life and and enjoying the eternal life that is ours because of him. This is a Christian's hope in death. Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed. He wants us to know these things and to be comforted by them so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the clarity that we can have if we are in Christ of what awaits us in the future. Lord, not because of anything in ourselves, but simply because of our union with, our connection to Christ. It's because he died and rose again that we have hope. It's because he has revealed to us what will happen in the future, that we can live every day with the confident assurance that we will one day be with you forever. Lord, I pray that we would live in anticipation of that. Help us to live every day with an awareness of your coming return and and the joy that will be ours in your presence. Might we prioritize your kingdom. Might we have character that reflects you. and, And might we just have perspective and perseverance in the midst of this life. And I pray that we would be comforted through what this text teaches. Lord, whether we have recently suffered the loss of a loved one or we will in the future, whether we are currently facing trials of life that may lead to our own death or, or that comes in the future. May we be comforted by these words. 
We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.